Last week we began the discussion of the fourth noble truth, that is the path to awakening, and exploring the first two aspects of sila, or ethical conduct, and samadhi. Tonight I'd like to conclude this whole series of talks on the first discourse the Buddha gave after his enlightenment, that is turning the wheel of the Dharma, with a discussion of the wisdom aspect of the Eightfold Path. Now in the three samadhi factors, that is right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, are well developed, they become a powerful force in the mind. They intertwine with one another. The example is given of interweaving three strands of rope, and whereas one by itself might be weakened, when three are intertwined together, they become very strong and unbreakable. So likewise, when these three samadhi factors are present, they become a powerful force in the mind and a stable foundation for the arising of wisdom. And wisdom here is right understanding, or the first step on the path. Sometimes it's translated as right view. So the Buddha was very unequivocal about the importance of this step on the path. This is what he says. And again, he's addressing bhikkhus. Keep in mind that those first five ascetics were not ordained monks. So he's talking just bhikkhus, people walking on the path. Bhikkhus means us. Bhikkhus, there is no single factor so potent in promoting the good of living beings as right view or right understanding. And what bhikkhus is right view? It is the understanding of dukkha, its causes, its cessation, and the way leading to its end. So we've already discussed the first three of the Noble Truths in quite some detail. But just as a reminder of the essential point, the essential problem of our samsaric conditioning, the Buddha summed it up you know, in very succinctly. He said, dukkha, the, the essential samsaric problem, what is it? In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are dukkha. So why is this? Because these five aggregates which I'll go into uh, during the talk. These five aggregates constitute the world and they constitute everything that we call self, that we take to be I or mine. Each of these aggregates, individually and collectively, are in constant change and flux. So there is nothing in their nature there's nothing in their nature that provides, that can provide a place of peace, of rest, of security, precisely because they're continually changing. And the more we cling to, the more we grasp at them, the more we grasp at what in its very nature is to change, and the more we mistakenly take them or claim them to be I or mine, 
the more unease there is in our lives. It seems so obvious that if we're holding on to that which in its nature is going to change, the holding on, the attachment, the grasping is the cause of suffering. But what's quite amazing is that even as we all acknowledge impermanence, the truth of it, because this is not an esoteric hidden truth. It's not that we have to have some great meditative understanding to realize that things change. It's so amazing that even in the face of this truth, which is so obvious, that the habit of clinging and grasping remains so strong. So it's useful, I think, to investigate why is this so? Why is attachment so strong in the face of a truth that is so glaringly obvious? So there are a couple of reasons. We can all easily understand impermanence on a conceptual level. But it's not so common for people to reflect deeply on it or to refine our perception of it. Rather, the truth of change is something that for the most part, people in the world and ourselves, that we've learned to tolerate and manage as best we can. But not necessarily to really investigate it deeply. But the Buddha gave tremendous importance to this investigation. He said it's better to live for a single day seeing the momentary arising and passing of phenomena than to live a hundred years without seeing it. So this is a pretty startling statement. What does that say about everything that we value so highly in our lives? You know, about the choices we make. It's better to live a single day with this transforming insight into impermanence than a hundred years doing all the other things we do with our lives. Why? Because impermanence, seeing it deeply and clearly, is the sword of wisdom that cuts through the habituated pattern of attachment and grasping. It's coming to the deep understanding that whatever arises, which is everything we experience, that whatever arises will also pass away. You know, and it's striking when you read the texts. (laughs) There are many people who got enlightened just hearing that one phrase, that whatever arises will also pass away. Okay, let's try it. Okay, I'm gonna gonna say it once more. Uh, So this is your chance, really. (laughs) Whatever arises, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. That's everything on every scale, you know, on the macro scale, on the micro scale. When we can really take this in, when we contemplate it deeply, 
that whatever arises, whether it's in our bodies, in our minds, in the world, will also pass away, it becomes a guiding pole star you know, for our lives, for what's truly important. So on this step of the path to awakening, it's important to emphasize again and again, not just to, to have this conceptual understanding, yes, things change, but to really emphasize the importance of seeing it deeply in a moment-to-moment way, both in the ordinary activities of our lives and also in the refinement of meditation remembering that what we frequently reflect upon becomes the inclination of our minds. So I want to read something about this teaching on impermanence, which is it's just a beautiful teaching from the Tibetan Dzogchen master Shabkar, I believe lived in uh, the 18th century. Uh, you know, and he was this great, uh, Tibetan yogi, and he used to wander around in the mountains uh, of Tibet. So this it's a little long, but it's I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Shabkar. Another day I went for some fresh air to a meadow covered with flowers. While singing and remaining in a state of awareness, I noticed among the profusion of flowers spread out before me one particular flower waving gently on its long stem and giving out a sweet fragrance. As it swayed from side to side, I heard this song in the rustling of its petals. So this is the song of the flower. Listen to me, mountain dweller, Shabkar. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but in fact you even lack awareness of impermanence and death let alone any realization of emptiness. For those with such awareness, out of phenomena all teach impermanence and death. I, the flower, will now give you, the yogi, a bit of helpful advice. A flower born in a meadow, I enjoy perfect happiness with my brightly colored petals in full bloom. Surrounded by an eager cloud of bees, I dance gaily, swaying gently with the wind. When a fine rain falls, my petals wrap around me. When the sun shines, I open like a smile. Right now, I look well enough, but I won't last long, not at all. Unwelcome frost will dull the vivid colors till turning brown, I wither. Later still, winds, violent and merciless, will tear me apart until I turn to dust. You, hermit, are of the same nature, Surrounded by a host of disciples, you enjoy a fine complexion. Your body of flesh and blood is full of life. When others praise you, you dance with joy. Right now you look well enough, but you won't last long. Not at all. Unhealthy aging will steal away your healthy vigor. Your hair will whiten and your back will grow bent. When touched by the merciless hands of illness and death, you will leave this world for the next life. Since you, mountain-roaming hermit, and I, a mountain-born flower, are mountain friends, I have offered you these words of good advice. Then the flower fell silent and remained still. In reply, I sang, 
O brilliant, exquisite flower, your discourse on impermanence is wonderful indeed. But what shall the two of us do? Is there nothing that can be done? Among all, the flower replied, Among all the activities of samsara, there is not one that is lasting. Whatever is born will die. Whatever is joined will come apart. Whatever is gathered will disperse. Whatever is high will fall. Having considered this, I resolve not to be attached to these lush meadows. Even now, in the full glory of my display, even as my petals unfold in splendor. You too, while strong and fit, should abandon your clinging, meditate in solitude, seek the pure field of freedom, the great serenity. So there are a lot of flowers all around here that are singing this song. Are we listening? Do we really take in? Again, it's not an esoteric teaching. It's all around us. But we need to really listen and apply it in our lives. Okay, so the first reason grasping stays strong is because we recognize impermanence on a superficial level, but we haven't contemplated it deeply, seen it deeply. The second reason that grasping or clinging remains so strong in our minds is because of the presence of one particular kind of wrong view, of wrong understanding. And it is this wrong view that keeps us bound to this wheel of samsara, this wheel of life and death. And in Pali, this particular kind of wrong view is called Sakaya Ditti, or the wrong view of self. Sometimes translated as personality view or personality belief. But here, this is not referring to the familiar patterns of tendencies we call personality but rather to the idea or the belief or the view that there is some abiding self to whom things are happening. And that's the great illusion that we live in. So it's very easy to hear this teaching, particularly the teaching of selflessness, or conversely, the teaching on wrong view, the view of self, as some you know, important Buddhist philosophic principle, but then miss the critical importance this has in our lives. This is not a question of philosophy. Again, the Buddha says, because there is no single factor so responsible for the suffering of beings as a wrong view. So we need to look, we really need to see how this wrong view of self plays out in our own lives, in the world. It is the source of a huge amount of suffering. No single factor so responsible for the suffering of beings as a wrong view. So why does the Buddha make such a a strong declaration about this. 
because so many of our unwholesome actions with all their attendant karmic results are born from this wrong view of self. As long as this view is the central organizing principle of our lives, and it is for most people, this is the basic understanding that people commonly have, the I at the center of everything, then we spend our lives trying to gratify the self and defend the self and protect the self and aggrandize the self and hold on to the self. All of these activities revolving about something that isn't even there. And all of that activity has tremendous consequences. So how do we wield our sword of wisdom to cut through this great delusion, this great manifestation of ignorance? Well, maybe you prefer a softer image. Maybe you don't like the sword of wisdom. Another really beautiful image is that of lighting the candle that can dispel the darkness of a thousand years. You know, so no matter how long we've been in confusion and ignorance, the light of a single candle can dispel all of that darkness. So whether you like to light a candle or wield the sword, in both instances, the Buddha's instruction for how to do this are very clear. But it takes a tremendous patience and perseverance to integrate them into our practice and into our lives. And they are most succinctly expressed in a teaching that the Buddha gave to his son, Rahula, who at this time was uh, a monk, novice. And it's so amazing, and, and this is true of so many of the teachings, in one line, <clears throat> in one line, the Buddha encapsulates the entire path of practice and the possibility of freedom. So it's not complicated. He said, and this is, this is the Buddha talking to his son, having seen the aggregates as they really are with correct wisdom, this is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself, one is liberated through non-clinging. So that's the instruction to us. Seeing the aggregates as they really are with correct wisdom. This is not mine. This is not I. This is not myself. Of course, we've probably heard this many, many times. Our challenge is to see how do we actually put it into practice? How do we practice this on a moment-to-moment -moment level so that we can see more clearly what it is that we do identify with, what we do take to be I and mine, and then to release that identification? Now, remembering the Buddha's summation of dukkha, that is, the five aggregates subject to clinging, 
it's really a, a directive for where we should look. We can use this framework of the five aggregates, which the Buddha talked of in countless discourses. It's, it's one of the most frequent teachings that he gave because it's expressive of how we actually experience things moment to moment. So we can look at, use this framework and see how we experience the aggregates in our lives. So we experience the first aggregate of form or material elements, in Pali it's called rupa, every time we're mindful of sensations in the body. You know, we feel the sensations of the breath or the sensations in movement, in walking. We feel the lightness or the heaviness or hardness or softness or pressure or vibration. All the very familiar sensations that are felt as we move through the day. Again, this is not hard to see. You know, they're, they're the very obvious physical elements that we experience. It's really interesting. I admit you've probably had this experience at times. But often when I'll be either doing walking meditation or just walking from place to place and drop into this mindfulness of rupa, mindfulness of the first aggregate, mindfulness of the body, free of, free of image or free of form of it, it really just becomes sensations in space. That's all the direct experience is. It's just different sensations arising and changing in space. And so when we are mindful in that way, connecting directly with this aggregate, first it dissolves our sense of the solidity of the body, and in that there's less tendency to cling. There's less tendency to claim it as I or mine. We can also focus on the second aggregate, you know, which are feelings, Vedna in Pali. Realizing moment after moment in each experience, there's a taste of it being either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Again, we know that these feelings, we know from our teachings and a little bit probably from our experience, we know that it's these feelings, particularly pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, that are the conditioning force for desire and aversion and forgetfulness. It's because things are pleasant that we want them. And it's because things are unpleasant that we feel aversion. And it's because things are neutral that we often space out. So we know this, but are we actually looking carefully enough to see it, to see this process happening in our experience. This is a critical part of the path. This is not something insignificant. The Buddha made a hugely, to me, <laughs> challenging statement uh, when he said, as long as there's attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. That always makes me sit up straight. <laughs> because this attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant is so deeply habituated. And yet the Buddha is saying, as long as that's so, 
liberation is impossible. So what does that say about how we need to practice and how we need to look at this second aggregate of feelings? It's not just a kind of philosophic nicety. It's like this is the very heart of freedom. We need to be able to become mindful of the pleasant feeling without attachment, mindful of the unpleasant feeling without aversion, of the neutral without forgetting. Again, this is from the teachings. The Buddha said, whatever feelings arise, and this is an instruction to us, and this is, this is a direct instruction on how to practice. He said, whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Be mindful of the impermanence of those feelings. Contemplate fading away, letting go of those feelings. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. And when not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana. So I've read this and said it a thousand times. And it always inspires me. But just recently, and this is the beauty of hearing the Dharma, the same teachings over and over again. You just, you know, one day you just hear something new in it. It was really on my last retreat where suddenly I began to pay attention to the conjunction between clinging and agitation. You know, because in this sequence, Thus we do not cling to anything in this world, and we don't cling, there is no agitation. And when there is no agitation, we personally attain Nibbana. So I began to really look at just that, that agitation in the mind when there is clinging, when we're identified with the pleasant or unpleasant feelings. And began to investigate more carefully both the experience of that agitation, it became it became a useful feedback, you know, in watching the mind. Oh, when it's agitated, that's a sign of grasping. That's a sign of clinging. You know, so we, we use the agitation, and then in letting go of it, letting go of the clinging, there is no agitation. When there is no agitation, we personally attain Nibbāna. I mean, the Buddha's, the Buddha's holding out this the possibility of real freedom, and we can at least have a foretaste of that. Each time we see the agitation that comes from clinging, and then the release of that agitation, the release into peace. So this is all how we, we need to practice, we need to really examine this in our lives. So there's the aggregate of the material elements, there's the aggregate of Vedana, feelings. We can also pay particular attention to perception, which is the third of the aggregates. And this is the particular quality of mind, mental factor, that recognizes and remembers 
just the different objects of the senses that appear. Now what's interesting about this is that when we really see how it's working, we see that how we perceive things conditions so many mental attitudes about it. I'll just tell you a story. This, it's a little bizarre, this story. Uh, but it illustrates a point about perception and how perception conditions how we feel about things. This happened years ago, back, maybe back in the 70s. I was teaching in Mendocino, in California, a two-week retreat. And just before the 8 o'clock sitting in the morning, I was sitting with uh, my colleague, Sharon Salzberg. We were just talking a little bit. And just spontaneously in a moment, out came a cloud of smoke and ash from my mouth. It was really bizarre. I mean, it was, it was just completely bizarre. It was, <laughs> what just happened? And it kind of had a sweet smell to it, and it was, it was just odd. Okay, I mean, I had no idea, no idea at all what that was about. So I went into sit and just carried on. A few weeks later, it was, the, it was when we were teaching the first three-month course in Bucksport, Maine. I had gone to a bank, and standing right in front of the teller, <laughs> another cloud of smoke and ash out of my mouth. So by now, whoa. <laughs> So I, then I started asking around, you know, what is this? So at that time, Ramdas was living in New York. Maybe some of you know this. For a while, he was with this teacher, Joya. And she was kind of, I don't know, some kind of mystic or other. Anyway, so I had a friend ask Joya, you know, did, did you have any idea what this was? And she said, oh, it's the Rabuti of Sai Baba. Now, Vibhuti is kind of this holy ash that he somehow spontaneously, miraculously creates. You know, he'll just hold out his hand and this Vibhuti will appear. So I heard that. Oh, <laughs> that's pretty far out. <laughs> the Vibhuti the, the of Sai Baba. I like that. And then a few months later, you know, Munindra, my first Dharma teacher, was here in the States. And I told him about it. And he said, oh, it's the fire element. Okay, that was a little less exciting. Uh, but, okay, that's another way of looking at it. And then some months later, I was with Deepama, and I told her about it, and she said, oh, you must have some disease. <laughs> <laughs> From the holy ash of Sai Baba <laughs> to some disease. It was the same experience. The experience didn't change. It was just these different interpretations. Right, different perceptions of it, and each different perception, I had a very different feeling about it and myself. And so this is this is kind of an unusual experience, but this process is going on all the time. We are living in the world of our mental projections, you know, the concepts that we put onto experience. You know, how much of the time are we living in just this dreamlike world of concepts during the day, even when we're awake? We're just, we're just caught up in the stories of our minds. Of course, it's important to realize that perception 
is a completely natural and common factor of mind. It, according to the Abhidhamma, it's arising in every moment. The problem only arises because it's the fact of recognition, and that's, that's operative all the time. The problem only arises when we don't see it as a conditioned mental arising. This is a conditioned functioning of the mind. Yeah. Perception arising, we recognize something. But when we're not mindful of it as being that, then we get carried away in the stream of proliferation, as we're all very familiar with. The endlessly proliferating concepts. And we can see so clearly how this identification with thought, taking the thought to be self, to be I, just reinforces, it solidifies, it strengthens this sense of self, the sense of I, it strengthens wrong view. You know, and its most famous expression, of course, and the basis of so much Western philosophy is Descartes, Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am. From a Buddhist perspective, that's just a statement of wrong view. You know, it's not, I think, therefore I am. The Buddha expressed it, or the teachings express it in a much different way. The thought is the thinker. The thought is thinking itself. There's no one behind it who's having it. There's no one behind it who's thinking it. The thought is thinking itself. So that's a very different understanding of thought and a much more freeing one. So the fourth aggregate is the collection of all the mental formations beside feeling and perception, which was singled out because of their importance. And in Pali, this, this aggregate is called Sankara, and it's just all of the moods and emotions and attitudes in our mind. You know, and all the different meditative states are all Sankaras. The problem here is that we so frequently identify with these emotions, with these moods, with these states of mind. I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm excited, I'm depressed, I'm peaceful, whatever it may be. We just add the I to it. We claim it, we claim each of these states as mine. What is dukkha? In short, the five aggregates of clinging. It's right there. And so our practice of freedom, when when we are actually applying the Buddhist teachings to our direct experience, it's learning to see this aggregate as well. You know, all of the different moods and emotions and mind states, the wholesome ones, the unwholesome ones, can we see them all, as he said, with perfect wisdom? This is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. They're all arising out of conditions and passing away. On one retreat, and this goes back many years, I had such a powerful experience of this because 
I think for most of us, with some degree of practice, it's not that hard to see the impermanent, selfless nature of thoughts. You know, they have a beginning, they have a middle and an end, they come and they go, and we can kind of get a feel for that. Emotions and mind states are much harder because they're more amorphous. They're not so clearly defined, and they can be so intense. You know, they can, they can be so strong in us, and it's so easy to personalize them. So I had one powerful experience of this, and it taught me something about seeing the selfless nature of even very strong emotions. So I was on this retreat, and it was, the, it was and still has been the most difficult retreat I've been on. It was like two months. Just a huge amount of pain in my body. My body was a wreck. And then there was some interaction that prompted uh, just these thoughts and feelings in my mind. And it was the feeling of anguish. So it's like I spent a retreat exploring anguish. It was really hard, really hard. But after about a month into this, and I was, I was consumed by it. This, this was not like a light little thing going on. I was really consumed. But it also, I just at some point got so interested. What is going on here? Because the suffering was so intense. So I looked very carefully to see what was conditioning the arising of this emotion. That it, like everything else, arises out of conditions. So the, the intensity of the suffering really made me look, okay, what is giving rise to this? And when I kind of aroused the energy to look that carefully and precisely, it was amazing. There was one thought, one particular thought, that was so seductive that if I was not aware of that thought arising in my mind, I was gone. It just led to an hour of drowning in anguish. It was amazing. So when I saw that, when I saw, oh, there's this one thought, I call it the trigger point. So then I just set my radar out. I just was watching with intense mindfulness for the arising of that thought. And every time I caught it, the thought came and went, the anguish didn't arise, the mind was just in a, in a state of ease. When I didn't catch it, and it was just so seductive, unless I was really alert, I was gone. And so it became fascinating to me just to watch the conditioned nature of these emotions, which can be so powerful and so overwhelming, and yet are essentially empty, empty of self, when we can see the conditioning process. So this is the power of investigation into the aggregates. That's why I say it's, this is not a philosophical question. This is all about the nature of suffering in our lives and the possibility of freedom. So on the most subtle level, we need to cut through our identification with the fifth aggregate, which is consciousness. 
so that we don't create a haven, a safe harbor for self and wrong view in our identification with consciousness, with knowing. And yet this is the most subtle place of identification. Even as we see the impermanent, selfless nature of all the other aggregates, you know, through our practice we begin to get a sense of it, very easy just to settle back and, well, I'm the one who's knowing it all. And so we create this sense of an observer or a witness. So how to cut through this identification with consciousness? There's a technique which I've spoken of often, and many of you have probably heard it many times, but I found it very effective in a very simple way for disidentifying from knowing. And it has to do with the linguistics of how we interpret experience. So, for example, usually, just in the language we use, we use what is called the active voice, right, in language, in English. I'm knowing, I'm seeing, I'm doing, I'm, right, there's a subject and a verb and an object. Well, that languaging of experience is, in its very nature, reinforcing the sense of an I, the sense of a subject. That's how the language is constructed. So at one point, I was doing walking meditation and just really looking at this whole question of awareness and not being identified with awareness. And I began to see that my experience, as I was really experiencing that, the knowing, the awareness free of identification, that the expression of that experience was best articulated not in the active voice but in the passive voice. For example, moving my arm. Okay, so it's just the movement being known, the sensations being known. Do you see the difference just in language between I'm knowing the sensations and the sensations being known? In the passive voice construction, there's no subject. And so it just is pointing us directly to the experience of knowing without a knower. And it's so simple. This is not complicated. So just if you would indulge me and just move your arm. And and just be in the experience of it being known. It's so simple. And it's being known spontaneously, completely effortlessly. There's nobody doing anything. And you can move it fast, you can move it slow, you can dance with it. And it's just being known. And it's being known precisely and exactly, not a moment before, not a moment after, I get very excited about this (laughs) because it's so incredibly simple and when we drop into this way of being, of just moment after moment, something else is being known, the whole day becomes completely seamless because there's not a someone trying to be mindful. So I would just invite you to, for those of you who haven't yet, just to try to play with it a little bit. 
And it's not that you need to keep repeating uh, movement being known, sensation being known, but you might use that phrase a few times just to, to set you up for that way of being with things. It's incredibly easy and effortless and spontaneous. And then you can ask the very probing question when you're just there. You know, and again, it's, it's just incredibly simple. It's just the movement is being known. Then that probing question will known by what? So that's a mystery. I mean, it's being known. We know it's being known. So we're right in the experience of it being known, but known by what? So then we begin to really have a very direct experience of the empty unfindability of consciousness. it's It's not something that can be found or located, and yet the knowing is happening. So at this level, we're really right down there on just the most fundamental level of experience of how the aggregates are all playing together. <clears throat> the the uh, Austrian uh, philosopher who he ended up living in England a long time, Wittgenstein, is a great expression. He said, the sense of a separate self is only a shadow cast by grammar. You know, and there's really something to that. You know, how we language things is very impactful on our view of things. And so we can craft the language to be expressive of right view, of right understanding. So we can practice this investigation of the aggregates in two ways. You know, you might just take some time with any one of the aggregates for a period of time, whether it's you know, the physical sensations or the feeling or perception, whatever, and just really stay with that one, just so we really get a very experiential sense of what the Buddha is talking about. So it goes from being Buddhist philosophy to really a direct expression of our experience. So we can just you know, pick out one at a time and focus on it. Or another way of practice, which is very interesting, is to do it in a more choiceless way. And moment after moment, just be with or recognize which of the aggregates is most predominant moment after moment. They're all always there. So they're always together. But at different times, one or another of them will be predominant. You know, so you're walking outside and maybe you're feeling the sensations in the legs. So that's the physical, that's rupa. And then maybe you feel the warmth of the sun or the coolness of the breeze. That's also rupa. But in the moment of feeling the warmth or the coldness, maybe in that moment, the pleasantness and unpleasant aggregate becomes predominant. Like the head is, oh, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant. You know, or you're walking and all of a sudden you hear a sound and you recognize it as a bird. Or you see color and form and you recognize it as a building or a person or you know, whatever. 
So that's perception. That's the moment of recognition. And then maybe there's a reaction to what you hear. You know, oh, you know, I like the bird song. Or you're reactive to the person that you see. So that's mental formations. And sometimes maybe you're just resting in the awareness of it all happening. So that's consciousness. So this is not going to happen in any particular order. But it's interesting. It's, it's like there's a playfulness and a, it's just uplifting to, to just take a period of time where you're really watching out for, okay, in this moment, which is the aggregate that is standing out? And this way we really begin to get an understanding of the interplay of them all and how quite brilliantly the Buddha talked of all experience in terms of these five strands. That there's nothing outside of these aggregates. So that's pretty amazing. Just as, as a model. Okay, so as we do this, and we get familiar with the aggregates and really how we're experiencing them, then it becomes interesting, and this is where the freeing aspect comes in, is to see in this play of the aggregates, which are the ones that we most habitually identify with. You know, as they're arising and passing and changing, where does the I and mine most frequently come in? And if we're watching, if we're observing, we'll see that. So on, on my last retreat, I was really exploring this because it's, it's just interesting. You know, where, where does the I and mine, where is that arising? So I was doing walking meditation outside. This was February, you know, in Barry. So it's very cold, intensely cold. So I'm walking, and so I was experiencing and, and working in terms of the aggregates. So I was feeling the cold and the unpleasantness and the knowing of it. And that all seemed very clear, and it was all very clearly just arising out of impersonal conditions, passing away, you know. Wintertime in Barry, that's what's going to arise. And there was no sense of it being my cold or my unpleasantness. The impersonality of it was so clear. But then as I was continuing the walking, all of a sudden I had a pain in the hip. And all of a sudden, it was my pain. <laughs> you know, and I saw that what was interesting was seeing that moment of contrast between how I was relating to something that was more unpleasant, which was the icy wind, it was actually more painful. That I could see as impersonal. But then the pain in the hip arose. It was really a discomfort. And I could just see the mind. You know, relate to it as being mine. And the contraction right in that moment. The suffering that was caused by it. You know, over and above the discomfort. But because it was in such immediate contrast to the other, to the impersonality... So then just settling back and beginning to really see that the pain in the hip and the unpleasantness of the icy wind in the face were equally 
impersonal, arising out of conditions, one was not any more I or mine than the other. And so we really begin to see where it is that we cling, where it is that we identify. And if we can see it, there's the possibility of letting go. So there's one image the Buddha uses, and I love this example. It's, and it comes up a lot for me in the practice. It's a, it's a wonderful reminder of how to put all of this into practice. So the Buddha's addressing the bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. Suppose, bhikkhus, that people were to carry off the grass, sticks, branches, and foliage in this jetta's grove, which is a grove where a lot of monks hung out. Suppose people were to carry off the grass, sticks, branches, and foliage in this jetta's grove, or to burn them, or to do with them as they wish. Would you think people are carrying us off or burning us, or doing with us as they wish. No, venerable sir, because that is neither ourself nor what belongs to ourself. So that's obvious. The branches, the foliage, the not self, doesn't belong to self. So too, bhikkhus, form is not yours, feeling is not yours, perception is not yours, mental formations are not yours, consciousness is not yours. Abandon it. What you have abandoned that will lead to your welfare and happiness. So abandon here doesn't, it, it means don't identify with, not claim it as being I or mine. So it's, it's kind of interesting just as we're going through the day and we're aware of the different aggregates and particularly those times when we feel that we're claiming ownership. I just think of this example and I think, well, if people were carrying off the branches and the twigs and from the forest here, would it affect me? No. Because they're not I, not mine, not myself. Can we see the aggregates in that same way? And what's important here and a little bit exhilarating, it's not to think that oh, we need to have this insight and then from then on we'll never be identified with anything again. It, unlikely. <laughs> However, just in a moment, for a moment, you know, so the, the pain in the hip, the discomfort in the hip, and then remembering this example, oh, this, this is not mine. This is not I. This is not myself. It's just like the twigs in the forest, just for a moment, can feel that, oh, that's enough. You know, we really get a taste of the possibility of freedom there, of peace. And then we get caught up again. But as I've mentioned here, you know, Tolka Urgyun's remark about short moments many times. So we just, just for a moment, but many times, and it begins to change the way we relate to experience. We start to remember it more often.
The bhikkhu who retires to a place of solitude and has a calm mind experiences a joy transcending that of ordinary people and clearly experiences the Dharma. Fully knowing the arising and passing of the aggregates, one attains joy and delight. For those who know, this is the deathless. So it's so. Just such a direct statement of the joy and delight and peace that's possible when we pay attention in this way. So I would just like to close with one other very small teaching of the Buddha. In one discourse he said, there are two conditions for the arising of right understanding. The voice of another and wise attention. Well, you've been hearing the voice of another. The wise attention is up to you. So let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.